what the Bible says about the Trinity. Now, we're not going to cover the whole of the Trinity today. We are really going to focus on uh, what the Bible says about the Trinity. And we won't be going through every theologian who's ever written or spoken about it. That would be too much. It's a big deal, isn't it? We're on holy ground. Steve spoke about seeing the big picture just now. That was really helpful because we're really going to focus on the biggest picture this morning. We're focusing on God himself. And God is beyond our understanding, isn't he? He's just so much greater than we can think or imagine. He's just fantastic, overwhelming, just so much bigger than us. So the Trinity, God is close to us. We know God, don't we, in our daily life. He's with us. We communicate with him. We hear his voice. But God is beyond us as well. He's still mysterious to us. However much we know God in our daily life, he's still beyond us, still mysterious. And the Trinity would always be mysterious to us as well. We're not going to get it. We can understand it, though, in part from the Bible. And as we follow through what the Bible says, then we will get a good understanding of what God is in Trinity. But there's no got it. Do you know, when I go on the computer every day and I hit on some new website, it's a little message comes up and says, we, you've got to accept these cookies, or it doesn't say you've got to, it says you can, but if you don't, we won't do anything for you. <laughs> um, or it's a new piece of software, and we're explaining it, and it says at the bottom, at the end, it, a little button comes up and says, got it. And you click on it and say, yeah, I understand. Well, there's no got it <laughs> button on the trend. You, if you think after my talk you've got it, I failed, because it... It, you can't. You can't. It's beyond us. It's too. It's mysterious. It's God. What does the Bible say? Well, this is a surprise. The word Trinity never occurs in the Bible. Not once. You look in your concordance, read the whole Bible, you won't find it. Strange. There's no passage that explains it. No single passage. If you want to know about the resurrection, it's already been quoted this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul expands about the resurrection, about the importance of resurrection of Jesus, about how we will go through the resurrection when Jesus comes. There's nothing like that. The Trinity. Strange. Some say it was all invented by the church. It's not in the Bible. It's all an invention by the church. It was done at the Council of Nicaea with Constantine as the emperor. It's all made up. It's not true. And that's not true even historically that the caricature. So why is it more important? Why is it so? And it is. Christians everywhere put enormous stress on the Trinity, don't they? So I thought I'd go to our website, GCC find out what I should say. <laughs> it says, our beliefs are based on the teaching of the Bible. We have the same beliefs as all mainstream Christian churches, which is there is one eternal God, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I thought that was really good. I can say that because I didn't write this. <laughs> it is all mainstream, actually all mainstream, so that the Orthodox churches, the Catholics, all the major Protestant denominations all accept the Trinity. Interesting. This is the Evangelical Alliance website. Take the time. Which we're, as a church, a member of. It says, One true God who lives eternally in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Wow. But what does the Bible say? Firstly, the Bible is absolutely adamant. There is one God. There is one God. There is no other. Here's the very famous verse. It's called Shema, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the Lord in capital letters, of course, means Yahweh, the name of God itself. And what's more, Jesus quotes it exactly. Jesus said, the most important one, he's been talking to a Pharisee about which commandments matter. And he says, the most important one is this. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. This is the most important one. God is one. There's no argument. In fact, there's a couple more verses. Do we not have one father, Malachi says? Is there not one God? And Paul says in Galatians, talking about Jesus and a mediator, saying, a mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. So it's definite, absolute, God is one. However, however, Jesus is God. We have God the Father already. Now we have statements in the scripture that Jesus is God. This is from Hebrews. Hebrews 1. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Think of that. Jesus is Absolutely, this written image of God. He is God. He's the radiance of His glory. Do you know the story? Many of you will. Of Thomas, who was missing on the day that Jesus appeared to the disciples, and he said, "I don't believe that Jesus is risen from the dead." He is. No, I'm not going to be convinced of that. I'm not unless I put my finger into his side and my hand, no, finger into his hands, wasn't it? And my hand into his side, and I believe. And when Jesus appeared again, Thomas is overwhelmed. And he falls down in front of him and says, My Lord and my God. Now, we need to think about that. Because this is a Jewish person who's been brought up absolutely that God is one. And he's saying to Jesus, my Lord and my God. This is possibly blasphemous in a Jewish culture. 
But the striking thing, even more than that, is that Jesus accepts it. He doesn't promise it. He accepts it. And again, here's another example. This is from John 9, the man who was born blind, who Jesus heals. And there's a long saga about going to the Pharisees and being chucked out of the synagogue and all the rest. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus finds him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, tell me who he is and I'll believe him. And Jesus says, I am the one talking to you. And the man worships Jesus. Jesus doesn't stop him. Doesn't contradict him. But look at this. This is from Revelation. It's a long quote here. But it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. So Jesus accepts worship from the blind man, but the angel refuses rightly to accept worship from John in the book of Revelation. Jesus is God. But he's also distinct. He's also distinct. I've used the word distinct um, often instead of um, persons. God in three persons. We need to think about that a bit. God in three persons. There's three persons in my house. There's me, my wife Jenny, and my daughter for the last few weeks, Susanna. Um, we are three persons in this house. But when, this is not the kind of relationship we're talking about. We are quite separate. I know Jenny and I are married, so we're one flesh. That's fine. But do we have absolutely the same purpose, the same character, the same essence? No, not really. And definitely not with my daughter. She's definitely different. It's not the same. In the Trinity, everything is united. There is perfect unity. Unity in character, unity in purpose, unity in their values and what they do. It's absolutely perfect. These couple of verses here that show the distinction about that day are our, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It's about the second coming, which Andy used this verse, I think last week, in his own talk about the second coming. You see, Jesus didn't know something that the Father did, at least at that time. He was just, there is a difference between them. Jesus gave him this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. He's absolutely obedient and subject to what God the Father says. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. So Jesus is God. He's distinct from God the Father and the Holy Spirit is God too. Holy Spirit is God. Look at a couple of verses that show this quite definitely from the Bible. 
Then Peter said to Ananias, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, when they sold a field and they brought some of the money they had and they gave it to the church when they said they would have given it all. And Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has entered into your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? What made you think doing such a thing? You have lied not just to human beings, but to God. You've lied to God. Lied to the Holy Spirit. I love this verse. I absolutely think it's a marvellous verse. The point is about the Spirit, but well, let's read it. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Well, the Spirit of the Lord is this, freedom. And all we all who with unveiled faces, he's going back to Moses, who had to put a veil on his face because he shone through the glory of God and people couldn't bear to look at him with his face. But we with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. But he's also distinct for this verse, which we're going to deal with, I think, in another one of these topics later. None of the biggest blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, just as, I won't give a spoiler alert, but I would say two weeks time, I think. Two weeks time. Right. If you're really worried about it, then you haven't, you haven't done it. <laughs> okay. I tell you this, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's what Jesus called himself, the Son of Man, will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So Jesus makes a big distinction between blasphemy against him and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There's a distinction there. Different person. Here's another verse. When he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own. He will be obedient and subject. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me it is from me that he will receive what he will be known to, made known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That I, is why I said the Spirit will receive from me. Some people, you know, say that the Holy Spirit isn't a person. He's a force. Some people hold this duty. He isn't a person. He's a force. And they... Um, they say this, one of the arguments they use is that the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, is neuter in Greek. It's neuter in Greek. It isn't a very convincing argument, actually. Because I'd like to introduce you to two Greek words, uh, padium and technion, which are also neuter. And the, they mean the same thing, 
palladium and technium, and they mean a small child. And most of us would agree that children are people. So, it's, it's a silly argument. If you hear it, you will know that it is nonsense. And I want you to look at the verse a bit more closely. From me, he will receive what he will make known to you. And that's an accurate translation too. From me, he is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. And he's God and he's distinct from the Father and the Son. Now, does the Bible ever put these three together? Oh, yes, it does. Oh, yes, it does. This first one's really interesting. It says, therefore, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. The name is in italics because it's singular. In the name. Not in the name of the Father and of the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. There's... I really love this one as well. You know, there's... Um, I know you've seen this psychology video where they asked you to count the number of passes where people pass a basketball and they have um, people in white t-shirts and people in dark ones and you're meant to count how many times they pass the ball between people wearing white shirts. And if you like me, you sit there and count religiously. And then they say, did you see the gorilla? <laughs> Anyone done this test? Um, and I didn't see the gorilla. Jenny did. She said that she gave up counting. Not good at counting. She saw the gorilla come in. But it's amazing. We focus. And there's danger sometimes in the Bible, you know. We go to 1 Corinthians 12 and we think spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, all that good stuff. We miss sometimes, I think sometimes the Trinity is buried in these sort of things. It's not buried, but it, you know, we have to dig it out. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same law. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God who works. Paul who wrote this came out of a Jewish culture. He was a Pharisee before he became a Christian. And in the Old Testament, and you see it in the New Testament over and over again, there is this star writing where you say something, you put a sentence in, and then you say the same thing again, and you put it slightly different. So if you look at this, it says, there are different kinds, the same spirit, different kinds of service, the same Lord, there are different kinds of working, but the same God. He's saying, it's Trinitarian. We talk about the gifts of the spirit, but actually, they're the gifts of the Trinity. Yeah, they're, they're all there, all there, from God totally. So, this is from 1 Peter 1, and it's an amazing verse as well. We've mentioned it in worship already. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. 
This is to the Christians scattered around the Roman world. And Peter's saying, look, you've been chosen by the Father, you've been brought to holiness by the Holy Spirit, you've been drawn to God through the Holy Spirit, to obey what Jesus said, and you've been sprinkled by it, but otherwise you've been saved, you're redeemed. It's the whole work of God on the Trinity. It's everything God has done. Why does it matter? This is just a lot of theology. It doesn't matter to us in our does it matter in our daily lives? I think it does. I think we should think about these things and understand the wonder of who God is. We see it. See how great he is. He's beyond our understanding. That should lead us, I believe, to worship him. We should be giving our worship daily. As Pete said earlier, not just when we sing this song, but every day. We should be in the spirit of worship and praise and thanksgiving. Another key thing. God's in relation within himself. Father, Son and Holy Spirit are in a perfect relationship with each other. They're united. They're subject to one another. They have the same purpose and drive and character. An example to us. It's unity in diversity. There are divisions. Not when I say division, it sounds like someone's arguing, but there are differences between them. there are three persons, but they're all in the same, same God. And our salvation depends on it. As we've just seen in 1 Peter, the whole Father, Son, and Holy Spirit brought us to Christ. I don't know if anyone knows it, but I can't think of any group of people who say they believe in the Bible who still believe that you come to Christ just through faith. Every part time somebody throws out the Trinity, they seem to throw out the Gospel as well. And they come to an idea of we get to heaven by doing good works and not just through faith and trust in him. So our faith is in him and dependent on these things. I think there's some questions. Oh, right, this is the questions you've been looking at in small groups. Um, I'm not going to go through them except to talk about number four. Because I've been going on all morning about how we can't understand the Trinity. It's all beyond us and we can never get to the bottom of it. And here I've asked you to, how would you explain it to someone who can believe it? Um, and it's not easy. But I, the reason it's there, if you attempt this question, is to get you to think. Think about how would you explain it? Um, I did once. Um, many years ago, there was in a church I was in at the time, there was an ex-Jehovah Witness who had come and he um, he didn't believe in the Trinity. And we had a long discussion and he wrote a paper, believe it or not. He wrote a paper explaining why he didn't believe. So I wrote one back, <laughs> which was, was very interesting. And he did eventually accept the Trinity, it did exist, and it was, it was wonderful. Um, so yeah, do think about it. I want to close this part of the meeting by us saying the grace together, which you will notice is another biblical statement 
of the Trinity. Let's say the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.